Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. So good morning. My name is Ronnie. I'm one of the members here at GCC, and it's my honor and privilege to bring you God's word today. So we just started a new series here at Gospel Community Church entitled The Call. And what we're doing is we're taking a break from going through a book of the Bible to look at some things that Christians have been called to. And if you were here last Sunday, Rick walked through what it looks like that we have been called to freedom as Christians. And today, what we're going to be looking at is the fact that we have been called to spiritual maturity as Christians. And this isn't just for Christians. It's a message for for everyone. If you're sitting on wondering what the Christian faith is all about, this is actually a great Uh, sermon to kind of sit in and listen to what is this Christian life all about and what have we been called to. In doing this, we're going to examine a couple different texts, but mostly we're going to focus in on 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 5. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and get there now. It is right after the book of James, towards the end of your Bible in the New Testament. And if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles strategically placed around the room. And that's actually a gift to you if you do not own one at all. You don't have one at home anywhere. You don't have one on your phone. You can take that, and that's a gift from Gospel Community Church to you. Now, because we're kind of dropping into the middle of a text, a letter here, we haven't been walking through it. Let me provide just a little bit of context to understand what Peter is doing, because I think it'll help you understand my heart behind this passage as well. Peter is writing this letter to encourage the church that at that time was experiencing intense persecution. And he's using this letter to exhort the church to stand strong, to look as Christ as an example, and to look forward to the future hope that they have in Christ. So remember that as we move through this text, that it it is meant to encourage the church and build up the church, and that's my intention as well. So even if at times, and I hope it doesn't feel this way, if it feels that that's not what I'm doing, know that it is from a place of love, and that is my my goal and aim is to encourage and equip you. And if you're you're a note taker and you're looking for a main point to kind of grasp the entire idea of the sermon— it's that to and through Jesus Christ, we experience spiritual maturity. To and through Jesus Christ. I'm going to explain that here just to give us an understanding of what we're going to be looking at. And then we'll see this as we go through the text. The to part is that Jesus is the goal. He's the aim. In Christian spiritual maturity, we say that sanctification or, or this process, whatever you want to call it, is this continual move towards Christ's likeness, that you would begin to think, speak, and act in a way that Christ would. Not that your individual personality would diminish or disappear in any way, but that it would be unleashed from the bonds of sin that you could fully be who God wanted you to be without sin. And so it's this continual movement towards Christ's likeness that you would begin to love in the same way that he would, and you would start to reflect his characteristics. So spiritual maturity, we must remember, first is to Jesus Christ. It's a movement in that direction. But it is also through Jesus Christ. That is, there is no other method or means or tactic to get to that end goal other than Jesus Christ himself. That as we grow in our desire for him, and as we seek him and grow in intimacy with Christ, that we will progress in that direction towards Christ-likeness. And in knowing him, we find freedom from sin. And that's important because it's not the other way around. 
We don't look for freedom first and through that find intimacy with Christ, but we first look for intimacy with Christ and through that he will free us. And so we'll start, I'll read the passage, we'll pray and then get into the passage together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If... Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. We just get to come together as a family and dive into your word. I pray that in the Christian life, as we seek to come to know Jesus, that you would use that in bringing us to spiritual maturity, that we wouldn't seek freedom or spiritual maturity first, but we would seek Jesus. I pray that we would look to him as our hero, that we wouldn't look to ourselves in any way, but be constantly looking to him, that we would give up on self and look to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting in verse 1, immediately jumping off the page, Peter gives a list of commands. He says to put away some things. Malice, which is, I mean, that could be another word for evil, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. He's saying, you, Christians, put away these things. And this is an important idea in Christian understanding. It's something that we go through through our our GC leadership cohort. There's some terms that we define and everything, but I I won't do that now. But there is an understanding as Christians, we believe we are saved through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. So it's all God. But it's not the idea that we can then go and live this licentious life like we have this free license to go and do whatever we want. Now, the gospel is that scandalous, though, that yes, Jesus saves you from every sin you've ever committed and every sin you could possibly commit in the future, even, yes, murder and adultery. Don't believe me, look at David. So the gospel is that scandalous, but it won't leave you where you entered into the Christian faith. That would be unbiblical. Not that you have to work to earn favor before God, but because his favor will manifest itself in some change in your life. Look what Jesus says in John 14, 15. He says, those who love me will keep my commands. In Matthew 1, 21, the angel says to Joseph, speaking of Mary, she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sin. Not just the consequences, but actually literally save them from their sins. In Romans 6.18, Paul says that we've been freed from sin and made slaves to righteousness. And in John 8.36, it says that the Son has set you free, you shall be free indeed. There, there is an expectation, not that we will reach perfection somehow in this life, but there will be this change. My son is, uh, if you've seen him, really, really tall. So growing fast. I mean, he's, he's shooting up pretty quickly. He's almost as tall as his sister now. The thing is, though, I live with him every single day. I come home and I see him every night. I don't really notice a whole lot of the changes. But if a family member was to come once every other year or something like that, every time they saw my son, they would go, whoa, he's way different. Look at how much he's grown. And it can be like that. Sometimes it may seem slow and we don't really notice the change, but there is this progression over time into Christ-likeness. And this is another glorious aspect of the gospel. Yes, we've been saved, but the fact that we, you know, not just saved from the consequences, but also saved from sin itself, that there is a real, 
there is a, it's not just some spiritual thing that happens in Christianity that one day will obtain, but Jesus is actually actively working in his church and in his people now to bring him into Christ's likeness. And it's a beautiful part of the gospel that we can celebrate and we can even run to God and say, God, you promised this in Philippians 1, 6, that the good work you'd started, that you started in me, you will bring to completion. So there should be an expectation too, as Christians that we will experience this. Absolutely. But how is this done? And, and I'm, I'm assuming that's a question that most of us have. How is this done? Well, look at verse 2. Look what Peter says. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. The truth is the Bible often gives uh, varying uncomfortable imagery. Uh, different figures of speech to get us to understand something a little bit better. So we'll unpack this a little bit. But first, before we do and look at this, what is the pure spiritual milk? We'll look at verse 1. In chapter 2, the very first word there is so, which so can be used in all different kinds of ways, but here so is used as a conjunction. So it's connecting these two different ideas. So whatever was said previously, we need to kind of take a look at. So look at 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 through 25, the four verses right before we came into this chapter. Everybody should be able to see it right there, but I'll, I'll read it for you. Notice four things as I go through this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. And here he quotes Isaiah 40 verse 8. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord reigns forever. And this is the word, or, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Four times Peter alludes to the word of God. I would say even the first one, obedience to the truth, we know from John 17, 17, when Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. So what is this pure spiritual milk that Peter's talking about? Well, it's, it's the word of God. Just remember that for now. I'll unpack the, the importance of that later. It's the word of God. That's the pure spiritual milk. And look at the flow of Peter's arguments from verses one as he transitions into verse two. He says to put away all these things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, and then, between verses 1 and 2, you can see that the word instead is almost implied as if, to say, as if to say, instead of doing these things, let your desire be for the word of God. And look at the imagery Paul gives here. It's not just read the word of God, have a desire for the word of God. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, some of you, this imagery may go right over your head. However, having been a father, I can tell you, I don't remember my daughter too much because it's been almost four years now, but I do remember my son who was born over a year and a half ago, that when it came time for breastfeeding, you would have thought we starved him. He is ravenous. He's like, ah, me and my wife used to make jokes about him. He literally would do that. This is my son getting ready to, to, to eat. Ah, that was him running for the milk. And the crazy thing, when we were about to have my daughter, my wife showed me this, this video of a newborn infant. You know anything about newborns, they can't crawl in the first stages of life. They can barely move. They can't flip over. They can do nothing. And the video was, it was a newborn infant recently born within minutes of birth was placed on the mother's stomach away from where the, the source of milk was. And the baby is using every muscle and all of its strength to move and twist and contort its body, working against gravity to get to the source of milk. It was crazy. In the earliest stages of life, it, it knew where to go for its source of life. And it's moving. It was the craziest video I've ever seen. 
especially being a father now and knowing how helpless they are. You know, they can't do anything. The, the truth is he uses, this is powerful language because babies, they cry out for milk. They move towards it in the first moments of life. They're ravenous, they're ravenous for this milk. Uncomfortable language, but powerful, helping us understand what our attitude towards the word of God should be. The sad truth is, though, this has almost been, almost been completely lost in the West. I watched, a, well, actually a couple videos. One was actually in research preparing for the sermon. Another one just kind of happened to fall into my lap. But the first one I, I had looked up because I know I'd seen it before and I just wanted to watch it again for context. And it was our brothers and sis- sisters in China receiving the word of God for the first time. And you would have thought that it was a Black Friday here in America because when that box came open, they rushed in to grab the word of God. And they were weeping over it and kissing the word of God. They finally had it in their own language. And just a couple days ago, I ended up watching another video, just kind of randomly came into my feed. I wasn't looking for this. But it was a pastor talking about his interaction with our brothers and sisters in, in China and other parts of the world. And I won't go into detail about everything they said, but these people had a love for the word of God. And, and at the end of it, they came up to the pastor and said, hey, I want you to pray for us that we would become like you Christians in America. And the pastor said, absolutely not. And they were, they were shocked. They said, what? And he said, I will not pray that. I will pray that we become like you. Because of their, their love for the word of God, they understood what a newborn infant understood, that they will live and die by the word of God. And that may, that may sound a little intense, live and die. This is a little intense, settle down. What are you talking about? Uh, we're not at like this war or anything, but th- is that the way the Bible speaks about it? We're in First Peter right now. Flip one page and look at uh, chapter 5, verse 8. Peter exhorts the church to be alert. Be of sober mind. Why? What says your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? I know there's a couple of us that have uh, been deployed to the Middle East, in here myself included, and uh, even some that have been deployed to other wars. What's unique about the war in the Middle East, I asked some of my office partners that have been over there to Iraq and Afghanistan, and I was looking for a certain answer. I'm not going to lie. But they gave me the answer I was looking for because we train we all have very similar training, so I expected to get this answer when I asked them. I said, what's the number one killer in combat? Most of them answered what I was looking for. Somebody said me, and I was like, shut up. But I said, what is the number one killer in combat? And they all understood the exact same training that I got, that the number one killer is complacency. As a matter of fact, if, you, if you leave, you're leaving the bases in Afghanistan and Iraq, going out to go on a mission, there are oftentimes signs outside that say complacency kills. That's crazy. The number one killer in war is forgetting that you are at war. Forgetting that you're at war. And you may again say, well, we're not at war, Ronnie. What are you talking about? Look at Ephesians 6.11. Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Why? To stand against the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 10.4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus tells Peter that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. There's this force, this enemy that is seeking to come against the church and divide it and tear it apart and to make you in any way lose your salvation and have you walk and fall away from the church. Satan even comes to Jesus and asks him if he could sift Peter like wheat in Luke twenty two twenty six. 26. We're all kind of far removed from that process, but the, the shaking uh, or the, the breaking apart of wheat is the shaking and breaking apart from the rest of the, the wheat. So this is Satan's desire is to shake and break Peter and all of us away from the rest of the church. So there is a real sense we are at war and we would all do well to remember that and not fall into that complacency. 
But why does Peter want our desire to be for the word of God? How is this in some way, uh, why does he want us to do it? And how does it give us the power to do what he calls us to do? Well, look at the end of verse 2 in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look back at verse 2 at the end of it. It says, that by it you may grow up into salvation. More importantly, I think here is what it does not say. It doesn't say so that they may gain it, so that they may acquire it or obtain it or receive it. It says that they would grow up into it. The truth is, if you're a Christian, you've been given this white robe of Jesus' perfection. And, and listen, listen to this. There's a declaration that's been declared over your life. I'm going to give some words. And these words could be synonymous with your name, who you are. Shameless, guiltless, holy, saint, pure, perfect, good, righteous, God's child. Later, even in this passage, it says chosen and precious. I could say holy. And you should turn around and say, what? Almost. Your name could be synonymous with any of these if you have been hidden in Christ. And for some of you, that may be uncomfortable, having that spoken over your life. It's almost like a little child being given an adult's jacket. The robe of Jesus' perfection has been put over you, and then now there's this expectation that you would grow up into this salvation that's already been delivered unto you. So is that it? I've been saved from my sins, and now I can go on living however I want. By no means, Paul would say in other places of scripture, he would say the gospel is so much more than just an eternal salvation that we, that we have someday. Jesus saves us from the consequences of our sin, but he also saves us from our sin. So that's the, the reason why he wants our desire to be for the word of God. Now, how is this done? Remember he said through the word, and Jesus himself says in John 17, 17, I quoted this already, but sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. Now, why, why would there be power for spiritual maturity through the word. Is it just read the pages on here and somehow they're like a magical spell or incantation and somehow you'll, you'll reach spiritual maturity? Is there some, some kind of interesting knowledge in here that'll all of a sudden bring you to a place to where you understand it? Not at all. It, it's, it's not about what it says, but of who it testifies about. You see, Jesus even rebuked the Pharisees for this. He says, you search the scriptures day and night because in them you think you have some kind of eternal life, but they're talking all about me. They're all talking about Jesus. The same thing happened after his resurrection when he meets the apostles on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, 27, he sits down with them and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he goes through and shows how this has all been about me. Every single bit of it. You look and you read about the Abraham and the promise that was given to him, and that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When Isaac goes up to the sacrifice, Jesus is the better sacrifice, the one that actually can atone for the sins of his people, completely fulfilling the law as the faithful Hebrew. When you look at the story of something like David, and you see this warrior going out to battle and slaying an enemy with his very own weapon, the sword that came against David, he brought down onto the head of Goliath, saving a people, which is the same thing in a sense that Jesus did when he takes the cross, what Satan used to crush him, and Jesus flips it around, crushes the head of the serpent, and saves his people. All of this stuff, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, is all either pointing forward to what Jesus would one day do, or reflecting back on what he did. So the reason why the word is an answer to spiritual maturity is because of who it testifies about. It's not read your Bible and you will grow into spiritual maturity. It is instead seek Jesus of above, above all else and you will grow in godliness. This is done through experiencing him and his word. As you read who Jesus is and what he has done for you, as you reflect back on the gospel, this, this changes you. 
if you want help doing this, how does this exactly look? Because a lot of people, they start in Genesis, and I absolutely believe you should read Genesis to Revelation someday in your life. But some people start in Genesis, and by the time they get to Deuteronomy, they've completely fallen off. So if you'd like some insight into how to do that, I would come to Rick or myself or Brian or Caleb or any of the leaders in this church and ask how this can be done. How do I find Jesus in the Bible? I would absolutely do that. For the sake of time, we'll move on. Some of us are seeking spiritual maturity. We're looking to grow up into the salvation that I'm talking about. And some of you, you want what Peter is talking about here more than anything else. You, you are ready to do what Jesus said. You're ready to gouge out and cut off whatever needs to be cut off to have this thrown away. You would say, Ronnie, I want freedom from pornography more than anything else. I want to stop envying other people. I want to stop lying and stealing from my coworkers. I want to stop falling into drunkenness. I want to stop bursting out in fits of rage against my wife and my kids. I will do anything to get rid of this. Just tell me what I need to do. And that may be the very reason you're not experiencing freedom. Your relationship with God is still based on your obedience and your desire to have freedom above everything else more than anything is not the gospel. That's just another form of idolatry. As long as you seek freedom from sin over Jesus Christ, you will not experience freedom. You may trade one sin for another, but you're not going to experience freedom. It's only in our pursuit to know Christ and know his gospel that we will put to death the deeds of the flesh. And this is just, this is just common sense. If your desire for Jesus is better, no temptation will come against you. If in that moment your desire is always for Christ, then whatever temptation comes against you, it, it will not prevail. You, you use a quick analogy just to kind of understand this. If, if, imagine a little thought experiment. If you have to close your eyes, you absolutely can. Imagine you and me are standing outside the biggest Walmart ever in existence. This thing is huge. It has everything you could ever want inside of it, okay? It's a Walmart. Cars, everything. I'm about to give you a coupon that will let you go into that Walmart and take one item out. Irrespective of its size or value, this coupon will give you one item in that store. So I want you to think long and hard. What is one material thing? If I gave you a coupon, you could run in that store and go get it. You got that thing. It could be anything. I ask, what's, what's the thing you want? You say, oh, this is what I want. Cool. Here's the coupon. Oh, by the way, what you want, it's in the back of the store. It's on aisle 50. There's that many aisles in the store. So I send you in, and, and you know exactly what you want. You know where it is. You make a beeline right towards it. Here's the thing, though. I said 50 aisles. There is aisles and aisles and aisles of stuff in the store. There is chocolate. Uh, there is cookies. There is cupcakes. I like sweets. Uh, but there's other stuff, too. There's camping stuff. There's, there's even cars. This place is crazy. Now, you, you keep going. You pass everything else. You grab the item, and you come to the front of the store. You exchange your coupon. You walk out. Congratulations, you got what you wanted. The one thing you desired, you went in the store, you got. Here's the thing. Were there not other things in the store that you would have liked to have had? I mean, think of a giant Walmart. Would there not be tempted by chocolate? Oh, there's chocolate. Wouldn't you want it? But the coupon only gets you one thing. The truth is, you passed up all these other things because you had a desire for something greater. That's just an analogy of what exactly this looks like. Your, de your desire for Christ and to know him is what gives you power to overcome sin in your life and grow in spiritual maturity. It's a constantly, not, it's no longer reflecting on yourself, no longer looking inside to see my own obedience, but looking to Christ's obedience on the cross for you and growing in your love for him that will give you power over sin and growth in spiritual maturity. But Peter pauses here as he transitions into verse three, as you look, to, he pauses and says, if Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
You see, for some of that, that may be the very first problem is that we have yet to see that the Lord is good. We haven't yet put our faith in Christ. We're still trying to live a righteous life, live as if we can be good enough to come before God, even though we, we have failed in every aspect. That may be the very first step is that you haven't submitted yourself to the Lordship of Christ and started looking to him for your hope and salvation. So he pauses to say that. And this is awesome. Because yes, that, that's true. Jesus will save you from the consequences of your sin, as I've said before, and will bring you into a right relationship with the Father if you put your faith in him and his obedience and not your own. And it doesn't just have implications for our own spiritual maturity, as I, as I discussed on for the majority of this. And the, and the reason why I did that is because I think this bleeds into the next thing we're talking about. It has, our, it has implications as to how we interact with other people in and outside the church, but let's reflect now as we move into verse 4 is how that looks like in the church. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's awesome. A living stone, been something that was dead and lifeless, it has now been brought to life through Jesus Christ. Rejected and spit out by the world, but what does it say? Chosen and precious. God calls you precious. He loves you. He even likes you. If you can wrap your head around that. He knows everything you've done, and not only does he love you, he likes you. Verse 5, you yourselves are living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So God is doing this work in all of us. He's building this kingdom with these living stones that have now been brought to life to go out and advance the kingdom. This is another huge aspect of spiritual maturity, is active involvement with the church. And not just as something you should do, this is like an implication of the first thing we talked about, growing in Christ-likeness. I mean, I mean listen, what, what did Jesus love more than the church? Jesus took on human form. He lived a perfectly sinless life, suffered temptation in every single way that we have been tempted, and suffered in any way that we could be as well. I mean, he entered into a part of humanity where in which the most gruesome form of the death penalty existed, the Roman cross. And he fully took on the wrath of our sins from God. Why? Because of his love for you, for the bride. Jesus has a deep and abiding love for the bride of Christ, which is the church. If you were to progress in Christ-likeness and it was to look more like Jesus, would it not therefore follow that you would love the church? In all of its brokenness, in all of its ugliness, the church is not perfect. I am not perfect. No one here is, obviously. And there are problems and there is tension. But weren't we the same when Jesus came and died for us? Isn't that what Romans 5.8 says? That even while we were sinners, Christ still died for us? We didn't have to come and clean up our act, but he faithfully served us anyway and went to the cross for us. And that's what Christ-likeness looks like. Progression in that area looks like love and service to the bride of church, for the bride of Christ. It's not only no longer doing the things you used to do, but now doing the things that also actively build up the kingdom of God. And I'm going to close with one last thing. Look at verse 5. I've been talking this whole time about what is the power for all of this? The power to move in that, in that progression towards Christ-likeness. What does it look like? Where is the power in spiritual maturity? Well, I said it's, it's through Jesus Christ. Everything that Peter has now talked away about putting off the old self, the flesh, the malice, the deceit, the hypocrisy, the envy, and the slander, putting off all those things and putting on the new self in Christ, 
coming alongside the church and building this kingdom for God as his house offering acceptable sacrifices. How is this all done? What are the last three words in verse five? Through Jesus Christ. It is only through Jesus Christ that this happens, not in our own strength. If you're still trying to do it in your own strength, give up. Give up. It is only through Jesus Christ. In a day and age, especially with men, uh, women experience this too. And I love this, so I'm calling myself out on this a little bit. I love video games. I grew up playing them, love video games. Very popular in our culture right now. So are the Avenger movies, these superhero movies. We all love seeing these things. But what is it though? It's an opportunity to be the hero. Almost in every video game I've ever played at least, you are the hero of the story. You're the center point of it all. And when we watch something like Avengers Endgame, great movie, but it's an opportunity for us to live vicariously through the characters on the screen. Maybe we can be the hero. And what I'm telling you now, this is the reason that's the heart cry of Gospel Community Church is that we make Jesus the hero because that is the only means through which we will reach that end of spiritual maturity, which is Jesus Christ. It is only to and through Jesus Christ that we will experience that. Amen.